Uh, good morning. I've been asked to introduce myself briefly before I read. Uh, my name is William. Uh, I attend uh, Christchurch St Ives, where I'm particularly involved in supporting our Link missionary partners. Uh, you probably don't see me around college much because they normally keep me at the far end of the second floor chained to my computer. Um, but they have let me out this morning and I'm very grateful to be able to uh, bring the Bible reading to you. And it will be from the book of James, chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 14 to 26. So it's James, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when, when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Uh, I was in a men's Bible study a few Wednesday nights ago. And guys were just sharing prayer points at the start of the Bible study. And one guy said, pray that I might be an agent of Jesus' peace in my workplace. Which is a pretty good thing to pray. Um, this guy was a low security prisoner at Silverwater Jail who goes out on day release and works in a smash repair place not far from here. I won't bother telling you which suburb. And then commutes back to Silverwater Jail at night. His um, classification C3, which is the lowest um, classification for security. Uh, while he's sharing his prayer points, he's wearing one of those anklet, security anklet things that periodically flashes. And I was just thinking, how cool is this? Um, you know, here's someone who's really been changed by the gospel at the end of a very long prison sentence who's seeking to live as an agent of Jesus' peace in his workplace. He said, you know, my boss is grumpy some days, but I try and be polite. Other days he's fine, but just pray that I'll be an agent of Jesus' peace in 
my workplace and I was thinking, how cool is that? I'd be pleased if the guys in my Tuesday night Bible study had the similar prayer points. That would be so good. Yeah. That chaplain in Silverwater Jail, um, Mike Wells, who studied here, he'd be happy to take a volunteer into Silverwater Jail every Wednesday night. If you're interested in being a volunteer in that space, uh, talk to me. The other thing we're doing with regard to student ministers is we already have one paid student minister in St George Hospital, that's Zach Hankin, who's here, and we're looking at doing a justice chaplain next year, a paid student minister role in uh, prison. So that's uh, something else to look forward to. Let's pray as we look into God's word. Dear Lord, we pray that you might speak to us through your word. Help us to know how can we can better connect with our society today, our changing society, and help us hear from your word what, how, might, how we might do that and do that more effectively, we pray. Amen. Now, our world has changed, and especially the place of Christianity in our world. Uh, in my lifetime, Christianity has gone from being assumed in our culture here in Sydney Uh, to being quaint, uh, to being ignored, uh, to being opposed. Christianity used to be the wallpaper of our culture, uh, but the wallpaper is being steamed off uh, very rapidly. Um, My non-Christian friends and relatives used to just think I was a bit old-fashioned. Now, increasingly, the culture thinks I'm holding back progress. Um, That's the kind of way that things have changed. How do, and you and I long to connect with our unsaved world. How are we going to do that? Uh, as the prayer book says, we pray for those who do not know the love of God and have not heard the gospel of our Saviour Jesus Christ. How do we connect with this increasingly post-Christian, post-modern society we live in? Uh, the place where truth is relative and fact, fake news and alternate facts have sort of taken over. How do you, how do you minister in that place? Um, arguments don't seem to work as well as they used to. Can I say what a disappointment this is to me? I was in the school debating team and I like arguments. You know, I, I'm, I'm actually quite good at it. If you want me to give a talk on science versus Christianity, I can start right now. Um, but less people are interested in that topic than they used to be even a decade ago. Uh, in our church, we run every few years a series on hot topics And one of my assistant ministers actually does a Facebook poll amongst people who are non-attenders to try and work out what are their topics. Science and Christianity has dropped out of the top ten, I'm very sorry to tell you. Um, Drat. Um, And the things that we would often run, perhaps earlier in my ministry, you know, nights on, a lawyer's looks at the evidence for the resurrection, they're still valuable things, but they don't evoke the same interest that they used to in our culture. Um, so that, that is such a great disappointment to me, I've got to tell you. Um, if you're interested in kind of reading a little article about how our mindset has shifted, um, there's, if you, any of you read Atlantic magazine, about September last year there was a wonderful article called How America Has Lost Its Mind. And it's kind of basically saying how we got from postmodernism to Trump. It's actually a very good article. sort of sees it's a logical output of that kind of thing going on. But there's something to um, think about in that space. I'm just going to basically challenge you to think about the fact that as you leave this place and serve in churches and possibly in chaplaincy around Sydney, 
left brain church alone will not work the way it once did. Won't work. Um, let's have a look at the book of James and see if James can help us out. And James talks to us, doesn't he, about matching our walk with our talk. And he talks about faith. And sometimes this passage has been controversial over the years, and you know for all the reasons why. Faith is crucial in the Christian life. We're all saved by faith. Uh, We know we must walk by faith. And we know that without faith it's impossible to please God. But what kind of faith... Is James talking about in this passage? Is it head? Is it heart? Is it something else? And he gives us four quick examples. Too bad and too good to help us understand what kind of faith he thinks is acceptable for a Christian. The first bad example is what you might call dead faith, intellect alone. And he really calls it false faith. If, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? Expecting the answer, no, for all the reasons you understand. And then he goes on to give the example of a man seeing someone in need and not doing anything about it. It's a little bit like Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, isn't it? The first two people who saw the man beaten up by the side of the road did nothing to help him, the priest and the Levite. A reflection here. The priest and the Levite had both received religious training. These were men who probably were quite good at defending their faith, but they weren't good at demonstrating their faith. And then we know the rather surprising figure of the Samaritan actually helps the man. Armchair Christianity won't do, will it? And it's a challenge for all of us. If I'm in parish, I say, you're good on Sunday. What are you like on Monday? At college, I should say the other way around. You're good on Monday, thinking about things. What are you like on Sunday? (laughs) Putting it into practice. So that's the first bad example of dead faith. Then he goes on to talk about the demons and what they think. Um, In Australia today, still the majority of people tick some kind of religion box whether it's on the census or whether it's as they fill in a hospital enrolment card or whatever it is, they pick a Christian denomination. Still, the majority of kids in scripture in school indicate they want to receive scripture. Those Australians who say they believe in God is still about three quarters. Despite the publicity, atheists aren't actually that thick on the ground. James tells us 100% of demons believe in God. (laughs) But it's not making a difference to them, is it? 100%. They believe and they shudder, but they're not going to heaven. Something else is required. And then James goes on to give us two examples of what you might call dynamic faith. Abraham and Rahab. Kind of the ultimate insider and the ultimate outsider in the Old Testament. And in this passage, James says at least three times, faith without actions is dead. Verse 17, verse 20, verse 26. True faith, he says, includes work. True faith shows itself in actions. Let's look first at Abraham, the ultimate insider. Abraham trusted God 
And God promised him a son. And after more than a 20-year wait, Abraham and Sarah have their son. Um, our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has talked a little bit about his, he and his wife's own journey of infertility. And I know there'll be people here for whom that's an issue that you wrestle with as well. Um, Scott and his wife um, waited about 17 years to have their daughter. Abraham and Sarah waited over 20. Um, by the way, I live in the Sutherland Shire. If you haven't already worked out, the Sutherland Shire is now running the whole country. Have you, has anyone picked that up? Um, just thought I'd put that in. Um, God promised Abraham a son, and when the son finally comes, finally comes, God says to him one day, take Isaac, load your donkey, take the wood and the fire and go up the mountain and I'll tell you what to do when you get there. And Abraham must be thinking, what? <laughs> but he does what God says. He does what God says. Abraham's faith was costly and obedient. He takes Abraham up the mountain and at the very last moment, God says, stop. There's a lamb, uh, a ram caught in the thicket. The substitute of the, the sheep for his son. What a stunning scene. Um, wonderful passage to preach on as you're leading into communion, isn't it? To think about the fact that we are the ones who deserve to die, but God interposes his Lamb of God in our place to save us. Abraham's faith was costly and obedient. And then we swing, swing around to Rahab, the ultimate outsider. Everyone in Jericho was afraid of the coming Israelites, the children of Israel. Even before social media, they had heard about what this God had done Word had spread. Everyone knew that these people, their God, Yahweh, was a powerful God. He had parted the Red Sea. He had defeated various kings on the way to this point. Everyone in town believed and shuddered behind the walls of Jericho. But only one person in town put that faith into action, if you like, and that was Rahab when she offered hospitality to the spies and her and her whole household were saved. She believed, she shuddered, but she took action. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves never comes alone. It's always accompanied by actions, words and deeds. The mature Christian who's someone whose walk matches their talk. They practice what they preach and their faith shows itself in action. And verse 22 is a bit of a summary verse. Speaking of Abraham, it says, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete, or I think you can even translate that mature. His faith was made mature by what he did. A mature Christian is someone whose walk matches their talk. So let's come back to that question we had early on. How are we going to connect with that post-Christian, post-modern world we live in now? 
where arguments alone don't have the impact that they used to do. Uh, let me say, by the way, God is sovereign and he can convert people any way he likes. I went to more College with a guy who came to church once for the sole purpose of getting the minister's reference on a private school application. That's the only reason he went to church. The, he couldn't, the minister was too busy after the service. He had to go a second week. The second week he got converted, okay? God is sovereign. God is sovereign, okay? But how are we going to connect with a world where it's getting tough? It's getting tough to communicate to people. I think James has shown us what it is. We need to have love lived out. We need to have love lived out. Faith in action, mature faith. Not just defending the faith, but demonstrating the faith is what we need to have if we're going to change Sydney and change Australia and change the world. Christianity is caught as well as taught. Um, At my church at Miranda, we frequently run outreach events through the year. Um, Sometimes the whole congregation at Easter and Christmas, sometimes men's events, women's events. We do the same as all your churches do. And my assistant ministers will often say to me, Stephen, we've got to make sure we've got a Christianity Explored course ready to start like 10 days after the event. Perfect. And I say, yeah, that's great. Let's do that. And then when we go back and stock take who's actually gone to Christianity Explored, almost Always, the people who actually agree to do one of those courses has actually been coming to church for at least 18 months. They might have gone to a women's event or a men's event back here and then they kind of enter the edge of the fellowship and they sort of get welcomed into the congregation and about 12 to 18 months later, they're kind of ready to actually, hey, yeah, I'm going to do the Christian Explored course. That would be cool. It takes a little while before people are ready to really listen to our message. Sometimes we've got to love them first and welcome them and show hospitality before they're ready to listen. Faith in action. Let me say one of the things I'm greatly indebted to Peter Jensen for, apart from being principal of the college when I was here, was when he was archbishop and he formed the diocesan mission He took Anglicare and our diocesan schools, for that matter, from being sort of over here on the edge to in the middle. He said the diocesan mission encompasses all of the aspects of the diocese. It encompasses Anglicare. It encompasses our diocesan schools, etc., etc., and our parishes. What a wonderful thing that was. And that's made a huge difference. And in continuing to make a huge difference, I think I can see in the time I've been at college to now a change in the way we're thinking about things, which is really, really good. And dare I say, we're getting back to what our evangelical forefathers always would have done. Think about Wesley. Think about Whitfield. Their proclamation and their good works were always integrated, weren't they? It would be almost impossible for them to imagine becoming sort of disintegrated in that way. I think sometimes as evangelical Christians, we've allowed ourselves to become disintegrated in our faith and our works. And I think part of that sometimes is we have a habit of overreacting to other movements that come along. Uh, You know, like we overreacted to, um, in this particular context, to the kind of liberal social gospel. I grew up in the Methodist church and... um, 
Sadly, many people in the now uniting church have wandered away from biblical proclamation and all they've had left is their good works, in one sense. And we've sometimes looked at that and say, oh, well, they had the good works. We'll just be proclaiming. You know, that's what we'll do. But no, we need to kind of bring those things back together, don't we? They never should have been apart. I mean, think back to Wesley and uh, Wilberforce and Newton and all these people. What did Wesley do? He preached in the fields. The world is my parish. He took the gospel to the industrial poor of England. The Methodists set up Sunday schools because the children from age 12 went down the mines. The only day the kids could learn was on Sunday. And they weren't just doing Bible stories. They were doing Bible stories. They were doing reading, writing and arithmetic as well, weren't they? Think about Wilberforce and working for the end of slavery. I talked about visiting hospital as one of your responsibilities when you're in a parish ministry. It's hard to believe that people from the Shire sometimes even get sent to RPA, but I went to visit one of my parishioners in RPA one day, and you know how hard it is to get a park in Newtown. Um, I actually got here early and found a park. Do you pray about parking spaces? I do. Um, one of my friends who's a rector at Remain Nameless said, Stephen, you can't pray about those things. They're too little. I said, what on earth are you talking about? We had this long theological discussion about can you pray about little things as well as big things? I said, yes, you can. Um, anyway, I arrived at RPA early. I arrived early and I was visiting hours actually hadn't opened. So I actually walked around the bottom of RPA. Um, in the foyer, they had a big display it was New South Wales Health had put up a display saying it was the 175th year of the modern nursing movement or something like that. And I'm reading through this display. I got to the last panel and it talks about Florence Nightingale. And they said, Florence Nightingale, to whom we owe the whole modern nursing movement, was motivated by her evangelical convictions arising out of the evangelical revival in England and her indebtedness to people like Wesley, Wilberforce and Newton. And I thought, thank you, New South Wales Health, for reminding me that. How cool is that? You know, evangelicals from the beginning, proclamation and good works work together. The whole modern nursing movement, as we understand it, owes its basis uh, to the evangelical revival. Folks, in one sense, you don't just go back to what happened then. You go back to the early church, don't you? Do you think the early Christians thought they had a privileged place in the Roman Empire? Do you think they worked under the kind of sense of we've got an entitlement to be heard by the culture? Um, we don't have that entitlement anymore, folks. If we ever had it, it's certainly running out. If they were going to change the world then, as we're going to change it now, it's going to be from the bottom up, isn't it? And how did the early Christians do that? Did they did that by loving the poor by adopting abandoned children that the Romans would leave out on the rubbish tip, particularly their daughters, unwanted daughters, and the Christians would adopt them. And they would show their faith in action. Uh, many of you can quote chapter and verse to me afterwards, but we have letters from Roman officials writing to each other saying, these Christians aren't just loving their own poor, they're loving our poor as well. This will make them a bit too attractive to people. And it did. 
It took three centuries. But the Christians changed the Roman Empire from the bottom up through faith and good works coming together. So, today in 2018, as some of you will even be heading out from this place at the end of the year, how are you going to make a difference in the parishes where you're sent to and other Christian ministries that you take on? It'll be by love lived out. It will be faith in action. Uh, there's probably someone here doing a, thinking about doing some studies in the future. I've got a topic to suggest. Okay, Someone is doing a bit of a missiological study. Someone, it might have been done, but if it hasn't been done, someone needs to write the history of the growth of Asian churches in Sydney. It's a wonderful mission story and I think an untold mission story. Why have churches amongst Koreans and Chinese and Malaysian Christians grown so rapidly in Sydney over the last 20 or 30 years? Some people came to Sydney already Christian, but most of the people who are now in Asian churches were converted here. They were converted here. How did that happen? It's a wonderful story. When I was at New South Wales University, the Asian Christian group on campus grew rapidly. One of the reasons they grew rapidly was they met relatives and friends that they knew were coming to Australia at the airport. They found them accommodation. And then they invited them to their group. And surprise, surprise, large numbers of them became Christians. Isn't that wonderful? Um, Rob Copland, who's head of AFES at Wollongong Uni, keeps challenging all my Anglo students from the Shire, saying when a public holiday comes around, like we've just had the October long weekend, he said, invite an international student home to your house on a long weekend. That'll make a massive difference in promoting the gospel on Wollongong Uni campus. Reaching out and caring for people and showing hospitality is so important. Let me just finish by reading out, um, I got my AFES, no, EFAC magazine yesterday. EFAC, does anyone get EFAC magazine essentials? And Richard Condy, the Bishop of Tasmania, was just writing um, up his kind of mission statement for the Diocese of Tasmania. I thought it was really, really good. He was in my small group at General Synod, so I thought I'd read it out. The mission is fourfold. One, to build up a network of confident, flourishing parishes. Two, develop partnerships with Anglican agencies and schools. Three, to grow a missional chaplaincy in hospitals, aged care facilities and prisons. And to be people of blessing in our communities. Let me just say one final thing. Most of your friends and relatives have a well-developed defence mechanism against the gospel. You know because you've tried to share the gospel with them many times. And sometimes in God's severe mercy, it requires some crack to develop in their system for them to hear what you are trying to share with them. My own father became a Christian in his late 50s. Uh, we 
We buried him in March this year. Dad went to church once a year. Once a year. Growing up, being Dad, it wasn't even a predictable day. It wasn't always Christmas. It was just some random day. He'd come with us to church. And when he was just a little bit older than me, just shy of his 60th birthday, he got a cancer diagnosis and went to Westmead Hospital to have a very significant bowel cancer operation. Uh, His surgeon was Dr. Fales. (laughs) I'm not making this up. This is true. And he didn't, which is good. Um, I was in the middle of my third year more college exams. And this is how it went for two weeks. I'd sit a three-hour exam in the morning. I'd drive to Westmead Hospital in the afternoon and spend the whole afternoon with my dad. And he would say to me things that my dad didn't normally say, like, pray for me. And I'd read the scriptures to him. Then I'd drive home to Newtown about dinner time and then I'd study to the wee small hours and then I'd sit another three-hour exam the next morning. And that went on for two weeks. Uh, Dad also had a wonderful uh, Christian wife, my mum, and an excellent church at North Rocks Methodist Church, which has always been evangelical, and the pastor was following him up as well. Dad got out of hospital and went from a a once-a-year attending person to an every-week attending person at church, except if there was a direct clash with an MG car club meeting, okay? And he joined a Bible study group, and he was a different person. A similar thing may be true of your friends and your relatives. It'll sometimes require a crack in the system for them to be open to hearing God's word. And I read a little quote in the Herald a couple of weeks ago where it talked about our hospitals being secular cathedrals. What an intriguing comment. It wasn't explained. But as people go through major life events like having a baby or having a big operation or facing death or something just downsizing as they move into retirement, into an Anglican retirement village where they've lived for 40 years in the suburbs and resisted the gospel without hesitation, they move into one of our villages and there's that nice chaplain I just met down the corridor who runs chapel at 5pm, I might actually go. That we actually need to be alert to those possibilities in people's lives where God will break in in those moments. Uh, Let me just say something emotional about my father to finish. I'm allowed to do that. My dad was a uni student at Sydney Uni uh, just after the war. He was 17 when the war ended. Um, All the soldiers got the scholarships when they came back from the war. He was one year too young to go to the war, so he couldn't afford to finish his science degree at Sydney Uni. He was working on the trams, and one early shift, one of the tram, the tram drivers said to him as the young guard, he said, look, the eternity man. 
You had to be up early to see Arthur Stace riding on the footpath. Dad store Arthur Stace riding, riding on the footpath. But it wasn't until Dad was in his late 50s in Westmead Hospital that God wrote a ten- eternity on his heart. And uh, this March just gone, he's gone to be with our wonderful Heavenly Father in eternity. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the way that you deal with us in our life and we long to see Sydney be a place where people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and come to receive and understand his gospel. We pray that you might open our eyes to work out how we can do that more effectively in these changed times and we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen.